Welcome to With Open Mouths. I'm your host, Konita Lilla. Today, we're joined by Billy Kearns, also known as Billy the Kid. Billy is a Kai Taili Dene Nehiyo poet and storyteller born in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories. She currently resides in Kingston, Ontario, the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people. Billy holds a Bachelor's of Applied Science in Electrical Engineering from Queen's University and has performed at spoken word events across Turtle Island, such as CUPSI and the Canadian Festival of Spoken Word. In this episode, we explore ideas of home and of the playful necessity of creative practice. Thank you so much, Billy, for joining me today. Um, I've, I think I've, I know you for about a year. Yeah, about that. In November. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just remember there being like lots of ice and it was the first time I was experiencing it. And you, like I met you at Agnes and you were dressed like perfectly. <laughs> you had very cool long boots and mittens and I was like, this is a person who knows how to deal with the snow. <laughs> um, yeah, and since then we've been meeting like on and off, but yeah, it's great to have you here. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. No, I quite like the winter. It's one of my favorite seasons. Um, and I think having the proper winter gear is the key to the key to being happy in the winter. It's not yeah. feeling cold. <laughs> yeah, and you kind of... You told me that. <laughs> I did. I must have. <laughs> yeah, you, you told me that and you, you spoke about like layering and, you know, um, and, and actually just to enjoy it. You said like enjoy it, like enjoy the snow, enjoy it. Yeah, and that will stay with me for sure. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell me what led you to spoken word and to poetry and storytelling? Yes, of course. So I always liked uh, narrative stories as a kid growing up, whether it was like reading books, reading books too late at night, or making up stories and telling to my friends and parents. Um, so I always had this deep interest in writing, um, storytelling. Like if you were to ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I always said like, I want to be an author. Um, so I was lucky enough uh, in high school um, I went to a school that had a, a literary arts program. Um, I lived in Ottawa, and it was really cool to be able to go to a school where like people wanted to be there for the arts. There were other programs like dance, drama, music, and so I was in the tiny little literary arts program, and. Uh, it really helped me hone my writing skills. Like the first year was like a boot camp almost of, <laughs> you know, okay, you think you're good, you got in here, now like let's actually teach you the foundations of like imagery, um, structures, like different forms uh, of not only poetry, but prose, um, short stories, uh, essays, etc. And uh, in my second year of the program, 
there was, I think one of my classmates was interested in slam poetry. And I heard it and I was like, I don't know if this is for me. I, I don't know about it. And then, uh, I, I don't know, some time passed and then um, our teacher actually brought in a spoken word poet. And uh, that was Ian Kediku. And Ian absolutely blew me away when he was in the classroom. I think I saw this and I was like, okay, I take back everything that I thought. I think this this is it. This is the thing. Um, it was just the absolute theatricality, like the the expression, the extended metaphors, the way Ian absolutely stitched all of his uh, all of his stories and intent in a singular like singular three minute piece just absolutely blew me away. Um, and then of course, at the end of the series, uh, he said, well, here are the places you can go in Ottawa if you're interested in more of this. So uh, eventually I was able to, I think it was a year later, I actually made it out to my first, my first slam. And I remember it was downtown Ottawa, so I, I couldn't go alone. And so one of my friends wasn't available, but his mom said, I'll go with you. And so the two of us went to this show at the Mercury Lounge in Ottawa. And that was my first glimpse at the scene. And it was, again, just totally spectacular. Um, and then I just kept on going. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's really what got me into uh, spoken word poetry, because slam is the competition where spoken word poetry is really like the the medium of that competition. So I've been performing um, and writing spoken word ever since. Um, I don't compete as much as I used to, but um, I was competing for a very long time, mm -hmm. both with Ottawa, um, a little bit with Queens, and doing some organizing. Um, but that's largely how I got into spoken word and now I think I generally do identify more as a spoken word artist than like a slam poet. Yeah. But both are still like, part of what, me. How does like poetry slamming work? Like what is the, how does this competition like work? So a poetry slam, the general format is you have about 12 poets, um, you know, get up on the sign up sheet, first come, first serve, that sort of thing. Everyone's names get put into a hat and then you're all drawn at random. Mm. Um, depends on the show, but this is what I'm used to. And then uh, you have three minutes to get up on the stage and say what you want to say. It doesn't have to be three minutes long, but it has to be maximum three minutes. Um, every 10 seconds you go over, there's a time penalty. But, you know, you say your piece and the audience, who is highly encouraged to respond to your piece either mm. by, you know, mm. snapping their fingers by saying, mm, or like, mm -mm. you know, vocally responding, giving energy back to this performer. Um, five judges are randomly selected from the audience. And those five judges, after the poem is done, will give them a score of zero to 10 to one decimal place. And then top five poets of the first round make it to the second round. And then somebody wins. And depending on the show, it could just be anything from saying, I'm glad I won, to, oh, I got a, a you know, this funny figurine from Dollarama, mm -hmm. or getting $100. Mm -hmm. It really depends, but that's that's the general format of a slam. Mm. Yeah. Very, very cool. Yeah. But, but it's kind of, it's based in community. It's like within that community. And, Completely. And you, know, you feel like supported. Completely. And I think slam was generally... 
and maybe this is my opinion, but SLAM is a useful vehicle for bringing people together. But once you're there, a lot of the time, you know, you're just excited to see the people that uh, you want to see and, you know, hear what they've been writing. Um, sometimes as a poet, you just go to the show because you want to go to the show. You're like, I'm not going to read tonight. Or you might sign up for the open mic and not be scored. Mm-hmm. Um, but there really is a big community in a space where you're sharing a lot of your most vulnerable stories, mm-hmm. I think, as well. And a lot has to be said where there is a space where people will be listening to each other um, and again, enthusiastically supporting each other mm. while the telling of that story is happening. Mm. Yeah, I think that sounds like it's yeah the most valuable thing, you know. Um, I find it, I always tell you this, and I find it interesting that you're an electrical engineer <laughs> and that like your poetic practice and your engineering practice kind of sit side by side mm-hmm. in many ways. Can you speak about that a bit? So that's not an uncommon observation. Uh, And the combination is more common than you'd think. Um, But largely, I came to the bitter realization that many teenagers have to come to when they think, okay, here's what I love to do, but I also am craving some sort of stability. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of this um, also coming from different financial backgrounds there's different pressures that people will experience to either pursue their art form professionally or not so for me and again I was very bitter about the decision at first Um, I was like okay I will I will go into some sort of STEM field I genuinely like math and science I like puzzles I like even making a narrative out of logic I think logic is a narrative Um, and being able to sort of use whatever tools I have for math and science and create something with that. So engineering to me was the most creative way to pursue something that was related to math or science. And um, Queens actually gave me a lot of flexibility because I had a general first year and I could figure out what I wanted to do, figure out what felt good. And for me, electrical engineering was what I ended up It isn't what I thought that I would end up doing, Um, but I think once I actually looked at the courses, I was like, oh yeah, Um, like electronic circuits or, you know, digital systems, those all sound so cool. (laughs) And robotics. (laughs) Yeah, we didn't, I guess we had, yeah, we had a little robotics course back then. Um, But yeah, I was not a fan of thermodynamics, so I think that's what made me not do mechanical engineering. Mm. But, you know, fast forward to now, the two practices don't necessarily coincide with like work like I'm not you know telling poems at work (laughs) or anything but I mean it does help my communication skills Mm -hmm. I think that's very valuable especially being in the you know field of engineering communication skills are uh (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah um and very important very important um but also just you know, even talking to my boss sometimes, he's a total, like, analog electronics enthusiast, mm-hmm. and he's brilliant. And to him, like, electronics is poetry. Like, it tells, the circuit tells a story, and that's mm-hmm. that's how he sees it. But I think for me, my, uh, my job and the stability that I ended up achieving through my job really allowed me to have the energy to be creative mm. and really allowed me like I didn't feel compelled to read at all during most of high school and during my undergrad mm-hmm. and I used to love reading 
but then it just felt like a chore. It was always like homework or just like, even if it was to better my own practice, it didn't feel like it was worth it. But it literally only took like three or four months, not even that, of being done with school mm. um, to feel like, oh, I can just read what I want to now. Mm. I can build my own literary canon mm. or, you know, it's not what I should be reading. Like, what what do I think people think I should be reading? It's, oh, what do I think is important and what do I want to know more about? Who do I want to hear more from? Mm. And that was a big key point of uh framing my more recent artistic practice I think Mm. um, was choosing who are the people who are going to be influencing me right now Mm. Um, and again just having the energy to do that uh, being able to support myself um, it's it's huge yeah I think I think it is did did you grow up in Ottawa Um, I I think I did grow up in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. I say that because I've moved a lot, but (laughs) I lived in Ottawa for seven years. Um, You know, I moved there when I was 11 and it has a huge, you know, obviously it had a huge influence on me Mm -hmm. Um, and the community there as well. A lot of the organizers and poets from Ottawa um, shaped who I am as a writer, as an organizer, as a performer, fundamentally. Mm -hmm. Who were some of the people so, that shaped you? I've already <laughs> spoke about Ian Kedeku. Um Rusty Prisk and Brad Morton were uh, huge, uh, huge influences uh, from the Capital Slam Collective. Um, same thing with other poets like uh, Apollo Child or Prufrock. Um, and let's see, the one of the feature performances I saw that again, I thought this is how I want to do future performances when I do them, was by a poet named uh, Titi Lopez-Shanuga. She wasn't from the Ottawa scene, but she did a feature in the Ottawa. um, It was the urban legends poetry scene that she performed in. And it was completely just the way the stories flowed into each other. She would tell stories in between the poems, and then the story would become the poem. And it was it was so magical, <laughs> but yeah, there's there, there's so many others. Like there's um, teammates that I've had um, who are still either writers or journalists um, or still community building people in other communities. Mm. Um, and I think just working together ultimately, like they were all influential. Mm. Yeah. Would you like to read us one of your poems? Yes, Please. I can. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to pull out a poem that I usually use as an introduction piece. Um, this is called Habitat, with the AT of Habitat in parentheses. I come from Yellowknife and the subarctic, the Athabasca, my mother. We know the smell of forest fires in July, the flickering of the lights every time the power goes out. We come from the moss, the willows, the garter snakes, the fireweed, and foxtail. I tell home, please, don't forget me. I'll do my best not to let myself forget you. I know where I come from. 
I can feel home growing out of myself in every hair through scalp and skin. I pull it out, recursively become home when I suck on the roots, reteach myself how to speak to the land. Wow, that was beautiful. Thank you. That was so beautiful, like home and like speaking to the land and that kind of feeling disconnected but kind of coming back yes i'd say that is largely a fixation of of my writing among many where do you feel this like journey started or how do you feel it kind of came about um so i mean journey is really a it feels like a multiple Mm, I'm trying to find the word here, but there's multiple journeys, I think. But I mean, I was born in Yellowknife. I think I talk about Yellowknife a lot. Um, Growing up, uh, my parents divorced when I was very young. And so I moved around a lot with my mother across Canada, but I would always return to Yellowknife in the summer to spend time with my dad. Mm. So Yellowknife to me was a constant. When I had all of this other change happening, I could always come home to the same apartment to the same vines, to the same art on the walls, uh, the same like view of the sunset. Like it was really grounding to come home, be out of school (laughs) (laughs) and uh, spend time there. So I would say that's that's where it started. Uh, I've moved to Calgary. Um, I lived in Fort Smith. A lot of my mom's family lives in Fort Smith. Um, so a lot starts there fundamentally too, because again, as the poem says, I I do very much come from my mother. Um, I grew up with my mother, um, just me and her, uh, for 18, 19 years. So that was, uh, again, a big part of my story is her story. Mm. Um, and they're largely intertwined in that way. But uh, yeah, I lived in Calgary, Fort Smith, and then through, uh, I guess, work with Friendship Center. So Friendship Center is like an indigenous community center. Um, My family runs a Friendship Center in Fort Smith. So my mom, through experience there, um, got work in Windsor, Ontario. And that's what moved us to Ontario. Mm. (laughs) Uh, It was a six-day drive across the country. We left on Boxing Day and got into Windsor on New Year's. And I thought, there's grass here in January. What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, yeah, we lived in Windsor for a little while. And then Wapool Island, Wallaceburg, and then Ottawa. I had uh, some of my dad's family was in Ottawa. Mm. And it seemed like a relatively nice place uh, to settle for a while. And my mother made a really intentional decision to say we are staying here. Like no matter what happens, like she wanted me to go to one high school. Mm. She definitely valued that I was going to a high school that had this, you know, literary arts program. Um, And also I think too, like very much she understood that because a lot of the people at the school were not only motivated in the arts, they were also motivated at academically. So she also trusted that I was being academically challenged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from Windsor, I moved to Kingston to go to Queens and I'm still here. Yeah. So I've been here just as long as I lived in Ottawa now. That's amazing. That's it, really amazing. It truly is. It, it blows my mind every wow. day. <laughs> um, what do you think it was about Kingston? I mean, 
you know, how did you find community here? So I think being here over the summers was a big thing for me that allowed me to transition seeing the world around me as queens and campus and being in school mm-hmm. to recognizing the city proper <laughs> and not being, I think also a bit of anxiety washing away as well. So feeling more comfortable being out and about. And um, I think Queen's Poetry Slam was definitely a gateway into community as well because mm-hmm. it was always open to anyone. It's run by, by as many Queen's clubs are like run by students, but open to anyone. Mm. Um, so that's how I met Bruce Kaufman. Um, Yay, Bruce! Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce is at the Agnes and he's fantastic. Oh, Bruce is amazing. Yeah. But yeah, that's, uh, that's how I met a lot of people. And, uh, you know, all it takes is just knowing one or two people to make you feel comfortable going somewhere else. I spend a lot of time in music. I have a lot of friends who are musicians. Mm-hmm. And I think even spending time with friends and then, you know, going to new places and feeling that calmness of the summer, the excitement of, oh, yeah, there's movies in the square or Mm. um, going to different parks. And uh, I think that really allowed me to sort of feel, again, feel like I was living in Kingston um, and not just in whatever bubble the university was, especially, you know, engineering, everything's so all-consuming. You're, you've got a class at 8.30, and then you've got, a le- like, a lab that goes from 6.30 to 9.30, and then you're trying to do homework, and then you have to go home, and that's it, and you start the next day. And, um, you know, I got my – I did an internship, um, and that's how I started working at the company that I'm at right now. Mm-hmm. And I really do value the work that uh, that we do. We make instrumentation for biologists and environmental scientists. Um, so you can sort of see like, oh, yeah, somebody's doing research with my equipment. Mm. Um, and it's exciting to, yeah. to think about that. Um, so I think just being happy with my job, um, you know, I definitely... I'm so grateful for my coworkers. Um, <laughs> so being friends with my coworkers as well um, and just... I think nestling into the arts community here. Um, my, I'll, I'll give a big shout out to my friend Haley Sarfeld, but uh, she connected me with a lot of, I think, um, a lot of the musical community here. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, she's a musician and also a poet, also a storyteller and a playwright. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think you just make friends with people. Yeah. yeah. I think that, um, you know, like what strikes me is that you always, like you really love your job because um, it's got to do with the land. It's got like, it's about making change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always amazed by how excited you get about <laughs> like engineering kind of principles, but like not principles, um, machines, like, you know, like the, the functionality of mm-hmm. them. You know, um, it's exciting. It can be very frustrating. I'm very frustrated with a specific pH electrode right now. But (laughs) (laughs) so if anyone knows where I can get um, a DERF at three pH electrode, please let me know. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) no, it's still it's still so much fun and challenging. Mm. Uh, You know, I get to do some problem solving. Mm. Yeah. How how do you think like um, like indigenous creative practice like um, 
you know, influences you or, you know, you spoke about um, how your family was involved in like art centers? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's, there's a couple of facets to this. Um, as a poet, uh, or rather as an indigenous poet, and I felt this from the start, uh, I think there's a lot of pressure to write about, okay, I'm an, I'm an indigenous poet, um, I need to present myself as like, you know, here are my poems about like these social issues or this injustice. Mm. And I think um, for me, uh, at least when I was in high school, I wrote because it was fun. And sometimes I would write not necessarily um, to explore what is this complex emotion about colonialism, Mm -hmm. but just make up a a story. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to share that instead. Um, And I struggled with that for a while and being able to reconcile that. And I think as I got older, I realized that a lot of the stories that I wanted to tell were just about my life. And it became that, you know, some people would say, you know, this is a poem about residential schools. This is a poem about uh, intergenerational trauma. And sure, yes, but largely I'm just talking about my experiences Mm -hmm. and being an Indigenous person is inseparable from my art. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, also growing up, both of my parents are storytellers. I mean, my mom, um, my mom, like she... (laughs) Sometimes she'll t- she'll tell me a story and it'll be the most fantastical thing. It'll sound almost like too grand to be true. And I'll, you know, maybe years later I'll talk with a family member um, or something like that. And it turns out the story was even more bizarre than she had presented it. Um, and I won't get these stories, like, necessarily in any... Like, you know, this is what you Mm. need to know this here. She did a lot of, my mother told me what I needed to know how to survive. (laughs) I will put that out there. But, you know, certain things about her life that were just so cool, um, she would just sprinkle here and there. And then here's a story. It's like, wow. Mm. (laughs) Um, So, you know what? I think this is a good time for a poem about that. Uh, This home here let me let me pull it up I'm pretty sure I have it memorized um but just in case just in case (laughs) I should have it pulled up um but this poem um these are some things that my mother has told me it's an incomplete list but it's a long list no that's a bunch of poems that's that's a bunch of poems But anyways, um, it's an incomplete list, but it's very important. So, when she was 19, she lived by herself in Inuvik. And she and her friends would drive south to see the sun. So, I use this anecdote one day to justify living by myself. And she replies, lol, yeah, but you're my baby. (laughs) (laughs) on bread and indigeneity she says my girl our people never depleted our our resources to the point where we had to eat the grass now it took me a while to process that by grass she meant wheat but the subtext of this conversation was 
Billy, bread makes you, and especially you, fat. Trust me, <gasps> it's in your genetics. <laughs> On the subject of eggs, when I was seven, she told me, to shell an egg, tap it lightly with the side of your spoon, slip the spoon into the cracks, and gently lift the shell away. She says she learned this trick at school. It was kind of like a boarding school. They taught her other types of table manners and etiquette, such as where to put your napkin, which hand to hold your fork in, and in what language to speak. She says there was an 11-year-old boy there who had a mustache, and they called him Macho Man. Hmm. My mother told me about the Indian residential school system ever since I could remember. But it wasn't until I was 11 that she told me that she went to one. This is the same year we moved to Ottawa. On the subject of Ottawa, she tells me that she hates this city. The summer air is too thick, she doesn't like the way city Indians do things, and she can't learn how to speak French no matter how hard she tries. And that's what the nuns at her school spoke. One night, after tearing down the bilingual cue cards in our kitchen, she says, we're staying here so that you don't have to move as much as I did. After six years, I tell her that this is the longest I've lived in one place. She says, me too. On the subject of Christianity, she says, my girl, we never needed Ten Commandments. Our people have one golden rule that covers all of them and more. Be kind and help people. But don't be stupid. Another advice, always back up your files. If you lose your files because you didn't have a backup, then you probably deserved it. Never do a half-assed job. If you're not fully doing something, then why are you bothering me in the first place? She told me that one after I did a shitty job at sweeping the staircase. <laughs> My mother tells me that I don't know how to stand my ground. She tells me that I'm too soft and that I need to learn how to cook in single-sized portions. Whenever we speak these days, which isn't often, she always speaks to me as if she's trying to teach me a lesson. These are the days when all I want is to hear my mother say, Billy, I'm proud of you. Most days, she says, my girl, I miss you. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> that was beautiful. That was so beautiful. I mean, the, you know, like just like your um, relationship to like your mother who had to take care of you by herself um, and had to endure all of these things and how um, today in her mind you're still that person and you <laughs> kind of like I, that's I'm, how it I'm goes. not yeah <laughs> I know I know that's why I think it's so it's so powerful because I think it um, it it speaks to your personal experience but also to like a universal um, you know, mm -hmm. like relationship, like mm -hmm. a parent and child. 
I think your mother sounds fantastic. I wish I could meet her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I love the part of like, you know, like back up your files. <laughs> and, um, like if you don't, it's basically your fault. Um, yeah, but like humor. And, and I think, yeah, like humor is a part of your work and like who you are. You like. Oh, completely. Um, yeah, you, you light and, you know, joyful. I, I think it's nice to balance that out. Um, and I mean, that's also true to who I am, like who my family is. Um, I mean, speaking back to like what it means to be an indigenous artist, I mean, there's so much like, you know, there's the real serious stuff and there's always humor with it. Like, <laughs> I mean, not always, but I think uh, generally a lot, of, a lot of people are really funny. They've gone through a lot. And sometimes they'll be funny while telling you how they went through a lot. Mm. Um, and that's just part of dealing with life, I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you feel like compels you to, to write, to get it down in this form? It really depends. Um, like I said, when I was younger, I think writing to me was something that was a recreational activity in the sense that it was fun. It still is fun to me. Um, I know that for a lot of people, writing is very therapeutic. And I think for me, the process of writing was therapeutic, but it wasn't necessarily what compelled me. Um, but I do think, um, especially over the past couple of years, um, writing, I will... I will have like a complex emotion or like something really serious might have happened and I'll set forth to write because maybe I'm doing an exercise and um, I kind of know in my heart what's going to come out. Even if I don't start writing about that thing, mm -hmm. let's say I want to start writing, um, you know, just about how I ate a really good biscuit the other day or something simple like that, like something mundane, it so often will immediately be pulled into whatever else is like you know bubbling in the core of my being mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think um my my motivation to write is largely largely because I enjoy it legitimately I think there's joy in writing um I think there's joy in telling your stories even the difficult ones um especially the difficult ones honestly um I think being able to tell your story with the aid of imagery or metaphor, be it a short metaphor or a long one. Like it allows you to capture nuances that you normally wouldn't pull out in a conversation with a friend. And then you feel like, oh, I've captured that feeling that I've been having, but was not able to say before. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, that was a lot of the allure of spoken word and slam poetry is like, oh, I have three minutes, you know, the, the slam format. I have three minutes to say exactly what I want to say, exactly how I want to say it, and everyone's going to listen to me. Hmm. Um, and I was a very quiet person growing up, um, not really good at improvisational things. Mm -mm. Uh, and I think that was the allure of like having this you know, pre-written thing, it's going to be articulate, nuanced, like anything that I wanted or thought that would be like presentable uh, and being heard. I think those huge just being heard. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And also kind of being in like a transitory community mm -hmm. like growing up mm -hmm. and then feeling like this is, you know, I'm like 
planting my roots, yeah. Oh, on the completely. stage. You know. I think that's an exciting th- thing, a part of like, you know, spoken word communities. I mean, you get this with any sort of community like hobby that you do, but you do it in one city, you can do it in another. Mm. <laughs> and it's like this gateway to a community at large. Mm. So it's not just the Ottawa community or the Kingston community that's influenced me, but national or even international communities. Like, I've been to the Canadian Festival of Spoken Word multiple times. Um, Back when I was uh, a youth poet, I went to the Canadian, you know, it was called Youth Can Slam at the time. But it really connected a lot of the youth across the country. Um, And you could hear the different languages of poetry that people spoke. Um, And, you know, even... In undergrad, uh, we took part in the College Union's Poetry Slam, and there was a we put together a team from Queens. We did it four times, I think, um, and we went to this competition that was just mostly American poets, but you also had some other people, I think, from like um, maybe Ireland or Singapore, like all over the world. Yeah. Wow, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is like a poem that is especially close to your heart that oh, you've written that's a <laughs> <laughs> and that, that you might like to share that's uh-huh. also a transitory thing i think um the the thing with stories is that i think they live similarly to how we live and our relationships to those stories change i think there is a there's a poem that is very near and dear to my heart. I don't think I'm going to share it right now, if that's okay. okay. That's fine. <laughs> um, I do like to intentionally choose what I share where and mm. um, what is the arc of the story that I'm telling give, for a given set. Mm. But, you know, there's sometimes there's a poem that, like, yeah, this is my favorite poem, and three years later I'll be like, oh, I don't want to say that again. Mm. <laughs> and you can still you can still acknowledge that this was a very, like, you can still say that's a good poem, that Mm. was a good piece of work, but also acknowledge that that's not where I'm at right now. Yeah. And to say that to a stage of people, like, how true is bringing out that part of my being, um, you know, how true is that to who I am right now? And also, what do I want to impart onto my audience? Mm. Is this what I want to be communicating to the world right now? Um, You don't have to say it just because you think it's, it's good, mm. um, or even that it's close to you. But I think part of spoken word is the speaking part of it mm. <laughs> and having that uh, reciprocity with the audience yeah. and the relationship of, like, what are they knowing now? Mm. Um, and by what you've said to them, you, like, have now said, okay, this is now what you know. Mm. Um, and then take take from it. I, I know I'm quoting somebody from saying this but you know take from it what you will Mm. that sort of thing um i do have another poem though that is also it was back in the day it was a poem that was like yeah this is the poem (laughs) so i'm gonna share that one with you um this is a story uh as many of my poems are uh and I think that's all I really need to say about it. But I just told you about, I just told you about my mother. Uh, and now I can tell you a little bit about my father. So this poem is called, and if any of you know the finger game here, 
I, I didn't know the finger game till I moved to Ontario, and I didn't really understand the point of it. But anyways, this poem is called Johnny, 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 whoops, Johnny, whoops, Johnny, 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 Johnny. Okay, one more time. Johnny, 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 whoops, Johnny, whoops, Johnny, 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 Johnny. Okay, Johnny. I meet Joni in my father's oldest photo album. Joni balances on the base of Cameron Falls in February. Her glasses whisper 80s. And Joni is grinning at my father through the camera lens. Johnny. My father texts me at work and has the nerve to ask if he's ever mentioned that I have a brother. He says, Johnny is 30, lives in BC, and his mother was a granola head with a goofy smile. Joni. My father texts me a selfie Johnny sent him. Johnny has my father's eyes, and they crinkle above the bridge of Joni's nose. Johnny's beard wraps around their features, holds them together, and I think it must smell like oysters. I catch my reflection in the phone screen, see my flat nose, my mother's eyes. Johnny. Standard icebreaker. Any siblings? I pause. For what I now realize is too long. I say that Johnny said he'd call me, but hasn't. And until he does, I will call him nothing other than Johnny Whoops. I'm definitely not stalking him on Instagram. Johnny Whoops. I definitely did not just accidentally like one of the videos. Johnny, 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 Johnny. And I talk for what must be an hour, maybe more. Johnny's voice is higher than I was expecting. Haley says it's like my voice, but cracked. Johnny asks me about my mom. I say Vina. About my dad, we say Billy, who is also technically his dad, and then Johnny asks me how I love. He says he asked Joni the same thing when they met three years ago and they've been close friends ever since. Johnny says he loves like Joni, fast and full, a romantic. I tell Johnny I love too quickly. I mean, I too love quickly. Cite how Billy loves. How Vina loves, how they met in a bar and flirted over a high-stakes game of pool. I tell, Johnny, I tell Johnny that I'm a poet and that I love the details. I tell him that I make playlists for the people I love because Billy made me playlists on tape decks when I was six and I'd let Vicky Carr and Jimi Hendrix sing me to sleep. Johnny says he makes playlists for his loves too and he looks like he's watching me when he says, when he says these things. Or, he looks like he's watching me when I say these things. Okay, it's a video call. So, of course he's watching me, but he's really watching me. Like, with all of his stare and a half-smile swallowed into something like wonder or relief. And I think maybe I've got him. Like, you know when a first date goes really well and you think, wow, we've got number two in the bag and neither of you can wait because you know that by some miracle, some magic <laughs> whatever you did worked and i think i might have a brother i think johnny could be my brother thank you 
I want to ask you something. Yes. About like sharing like very intimate details of like yourself. Yes. And <laughs> does that like how do you manage to to do that? Like how do you separate or don't you separate or um or is it just I think I don't know, it's just what I do. I think I always have a tendency to overshare. <laughs> but um I think for me part of storytelling is just saying again it's processing the complex things that happen to me in life like when I found out that I had a brother after you know identifying as an only child my entire life like I was literally in my bedroom like screaming <laughs> and I was like okay this this has to be a poem I know this is going to be a poem I don't know when or where but this is going to be a poem um it just like changes the shape of you it does it does and I think you know, this this goes back to what I was saying earlier about being intentional with what you share and in what spaces. Mm. So a lot of my poetry is highly personal. And I think that is largely what will, you know, what will I want to leave with a space definitely has to do with like, what is that story? Um, what happened? Who did it happen to? Because I, I name people in a lot of my poems. Mm. And I'm not just sharing my story, but I'm also sharing their stories. Mm. And so I really do try to be intentional and responsible with that um, because that's part of, you know, honoring a story and whatever it imparts to the world. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that idea of like honoring a story as like a living thing because it really is. Truly. It, like, yeah. I mean, you, you're not only sharing like parts of yourself, mm -hmm. but also like everybody, you know. Yes. I mean, like, wow, I know a lot about your dad now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk, like, you're going to be running an open, like, a spoken word uh, workshop yes. with Agnes. And I'd like to talk about that because, yes. you know, I think um, so many people would really just love to learn how to write but also perform. And it's, mm -hmm. it's part of this, like, you know, like a larger process. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really do like the way that we split up the, the workshop and, you know, can you, we, we've worked on this together. So you, you have a yeah, lot of, you have a lot of this <laughs> too. Like, I think uh, that the conversations that we had, um, were really influential to what I wanted to bring into a workshop because, you know, there's always the, okay, here's the introduction to spoken word, you know, is what it is, but, uh, creating something that can be, you know, over six different sessions, you know, twice a month, um, you know, somebody can either pop in, say like, oh, I can only make the the Sunday session or I can only make the Tuesday session or uh, saying, I have a really busy life right now, but I only want to go to this workshop because it interests me or saying I have time for all of these and I just want to learn how to tell my stories and, you know, what is spoken word and what is poetry or, you know, how do I tell a story? All of this. So just sort of I want to be able to equip people to you know, value their stories, value the power that is in a story. Um, also, of course, go through the the nitty gritty of you know I, the poetic toolkit, <laughs> imagery, wordplay, um, you know, either sound devices, uh, rhythm, uh, form. There's a lot really to pack in there, but you know, there's the idea of you know, what is a narrative in the first place. Um, 
And I'm going to bring this back, um, a couple of the authors that I was reading, um, specifically uh, Leslie Marmon Selko um, and George Blondin, who is a Dene elder, but who really collected a lot of Dene stories, um, is the idea of what is a story and story as a living thing. And once you say it, it's it's out there. Hmm. Um, and like Leslie Marmon Silco, her story, um, or rather her, the idea of what is a story that was presented was, you know, it's it's out there. I can't take it back. And there was this sort of gathering of, of witches and one of the witches said, okay, like, uh, I'm going to do this scary, you know, this scary trick and this other witch, well, I can do a scarier trick. And then one witch told like the scariest, instead of doing a trick, they just told a story about this horrible thing that was going to happen. Mm. And everyone said, okay, that's like, you, you won, <laughs> you won the contest. <laughs> and then they said, okay, but please take it back now. And then mm. the, the witch said, I can't, it's out there. It's going to happen. Wow. And I think that's something that I really try to hold in my creative practice, um, maybe more so in the positive sense. Uh, and this is something I like to bring into workshops is how can we manifest what we want to happen? Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of my more recent poems that is close to me is exactly that manifesting hope, mm. um, especially in the darkest of times when everything feels like it's falling apart. Like what I will now try to do as an exercise for myself is write what I want to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it feels totally unimaginable or even if it is imaginable, just write the poem as if it is going to happen um, instead of wallowing about like, oh, this happened and this is never going to be this way. And, and you know, this, woe is me. Yeah, because that is a really, you know, that is how it feels mm-hmm. is that like, you know, this thing is lost or this thing is impossible and I will never experience this or I'll never experience this again. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's, you know, heartbreak or housing insecurity, you know, Mm. like it's being able to write through those moments and almost like draft a plan (laughs) of survival, Mm. (laughs) I think has been very valuable. And that's something that I also want to equip people with Mm. because I think, um, writing as therapy is so important, but I think it's easy to get stuck in dwelling on, trauma Mm -hmm. and then even commodifying trauma after that like you know a lot of when you really do get into writing and you feel like you're good at it whether it's through a competition or um you know getting published that really feels the pressure to like sell your trauma and i think um it's important to express that it's important to tell those stories but also realize like what do i need right now Mm. um and sometimes even just having that hope or even writing joy for the sake of it I think is equally important. It's, I think you need that balance. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyways, all of that is to say is the general Mm. structure of the workshop. You know, what is the story? Uh, Why are we here? Trying to get a sense of what people are looking for. Um, And then a couple of workshops, you know, giving them their poetic toolkits, be it the structure of a story. Oh yeah, and I brought in George Blondin earlier because... Um, a lot of Dene stories don't re- necessarily feel like a story in the Western sense. Mm. Like it ends and you're almost like trained to think of, well, what happens next? Or what does that mean? And it's like, no, that's the story. That's, that's, that is the story. <laughs> like That's how it's told. Um, and so trying to say, okay, you don't need this whole like 
you know, structure of like the, you know, here is the inciting incident and this is the denouement. Like you don't mm. need all of those things. Those are valuable. Those are very valuable things. But it doesn't, every story doesn't have to follow that exact same cookie cutter model. Mm. And um, moving away from that in a structural sort of sense and just letting the story be what it is. Um, but yeah, then the the nitty gritty of the poetic toolkit, um, how to move away from saying, you know, just the abstract things, but how can we bring in the concrete world around us to really bring forth that feeling? Mm. Um, and I think that often, at least uh, when we talk about land, I think to me that is where land is inextricably tied to poetry because what was happening you, to you at the moment, it was raining and you felt especially sad because it was raining. Well, that's because, you know, this is also the land is now part of your poem. Mm. <laughs> like this is everything, whether it's going to the water, feeling that, um, seeing the moon, like everything, uh, whether it's like touching the grass or the smell that you smelt from the flowers, like that all totally influences how you're feeling, how you're being. Mm -hmm. um, even what you were saying too about how the summer versus the winter, like how that totally changes mm -hmm. how your life feels. Um, again, that is like the land in poetry. Um, and yeah, I think I want to really explore the idea of the responsibility of the storyteller. I didn't make that phrase up. Um, I wish I could credit who it was, but I've heard multiple people mm. give workshops on this. And so I would like to impart my my version of this workshop um, to sort of explore, you know, now that we are telling stories, now that we do have audiences, how do we do that with intention, with kindness and with respect to not only ourselves, but our audience, the people in the stories and the stories themselves. Mm. Um, and then also, you know, exploring our inspiration. Um, what does home mean to us? Um, is it a multiple thing? Is it a singular thing? Is it, does it move? Um, do you even feel a connection to home at all? Um, and, you know, other sources that people might have from inspiration and what, like, again, what drives you? Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm hoping to end off with a workshop that will discuss how can we build community? Mm -hmm. um, because I think, you know, the past couple of years have been really hard for a lot of communities. And, uh, I think having this workshop series, what I'm hoping is to help, um, you know, build a little community, be it connecting people who are around and have been around <laughs> or people who are totally new and want to want to experience sharing art with other people, you know? Yeah, I think it's manifesting hope. Yeah. I think is is very beautiful. And I think it's like a wonderful way to end and, <laughs> yeah, to invite folk to come and, you know, come to Agnes to take your workshops. And, mm -hmm. yeah, I think it will be fantastic and details will be on our website. So thank you so much. Thank you. Billy. It's been fantastic. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kenita. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to With Open Mouths. Special thanks to our guest, Billy the Kid, for speaking with us today. This podcast was hosted by myself, Connie Talila, and produced by Agnes Etherington Art Centre in partnership with Queen's University's campus radio station, CFRC 101.9 FM. The music is composed by Jamil 3DN and produced by Alroy EC3 Cox III. 
Episodes of With Open Mouths are released monthly and you can find them on Digital Agnes, CFRC's website and on your favorite podcasting platform. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode. We'll see you next time. We were shining, they wanted us in shade. They thought we would stay slaves.